Texas Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, May 26, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana, Taylor and Sarah back in Connecticut. And guys, uh, I have a question for you. Think about this for a moment. Uh, we have an interview with Spencer Strider that's going to run on today's podcast. He's in the conversation for the best pitcher on the planet. And man, <laughs> like his knowledge of pitching, you can tell, is so detailed. Uh, it's part of the reason why he's gotten so great. Give me the topic about the each of you have the most technical knowledge. Like, give me something that you really know, Taylor, uh, at, that uh, you could describe the level of detail that we heard from Spencer Strider. This uh, won't surprise anyone, but podcasting for sure. <laughs> Sports podcasting. I mean, that it's in my veins right now, man. So I, I could chop that up, uh, you know, for however long about that. Okay, Sarah. Okay, well, Taylor like made it a professional workstation thing. Yeah, he kind of went very. He he didn't go quite to the where I wanted him to go. Uh-huh. But because mine, no surprise to anybody, is going to be Taylor Swift. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, and for me, I think it's Civil War history. Like I, mm. I think that one, I I could go completely nerd level because that's. Would you agree with me? That's where uh, Spencer Strider went. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. The detail was insane for sure. Nerding out for sure is a great way to uh, to to put a phrase on on this interview here, and it's great. And you know what? It's it's in line with our previous interviews with Joey Votto and Corbin Carroll, who yes. were yeah. just so thorough with their answers and very thoughtful. So I mean, I love that that level of detail that we're digging into here on the podcast. Yeah, you love that someone loves his job as much as Spencer Strider does. It's uh, as I say, it's part of what makes him great. All right. We, and we do have Spencer Strider on the mound on Sunday night baseball against the Philadelphia Phillies who started their series last night in Atlanta against the Braves top of the fifth inning. The Phillies were losing four to three Dylan Dodd trying to get through the fifth. Here's a swing and a bomb way back to right field. This game is tied up. Where will it land? Oh my Bryce Harper with a moonshot. Just to the left of the chop house. He's tied it up 4-4 on Harper's third home run of the season. That was Scott Fransky, 94 WIP. The score was 5-all, bottom of the eighth inning, and Brian Snicker inserted Travis Darno as a pinch hitter for Michael Harris, and it paid off. Hitters count. Bases loaded, 2-0. And he strikes it hard through the left side of base hit. Ozzie will score. And here comes Marcelo Zuna. Throw to the plate, cut off, and it's a two-RBI base hit. Braves have the lead in the eighth. 7-5 Atlanta. And they would win this game 8-5. Orioles, Yankees, final game of the series in Yankee Stadium. We heard from Melanie Newman the other day about how there's been this great playoff atmosphere in Yankee Stadium this week. Top of the eighth inning, the Orioles took control. 1-1 pitch. Right field. Judge heading back. He won't get this one. It's out of here. No, off the wall. Off the wall. Two runs have scored. Hayes stops at second. That from WBAL. After the 3-1 game, Aaron Boone talked about getting ejected again. That's four for Booney during the 2023 season. I went out there pretty calmly after I was thrown out. Again, I should not have been thrown out of that game. There was I was very calm, didn't do much at all. And then Gooch was holding me back and just telling me, <laughs> so I didn't need to be restrained. I wasn't, you know, I, 
I just, the dismissive attitude and walking away, uh, you know, I, I took exception to. So I really didn't have to be restrained. I was being restrained. He was keeping in front of me. I, I, nothing bad was going to happen. So we're going to get some context on the Aaron Boone ejections later on from Sarah Langs. The numbers are going to surprise you for him since it started the 2022 season. The Mets designated catcher Gary Sanchez for assignment. This is one week after he was called up by the team. Uh, this is because they reinstated catcher Tomas Nito, who had been on the injured list with dry eye syndrome. The Mets played the Cubs on Thursday, and Pete Alonso did it again. Swung on, lifted, opposite way, right field, Suzuki going back towards the warning track. He looks up, and it's gone! An opposite field, two-run home run for Pete Alonso, number 19. Number 19, and we're in May. He's on a pace right now uh, for a 60-home run season with about 145 RBI off to a great start. The Padres face the Nationals, and in the top of the ninth inning, man, Ruben Odor came through big time for San Diego. 1-0 to Odor. The pitch hit in the air, deep to right field, and down the line. This one is going to go! A three-run homer! Ruben Odor again! And the Padres are back in front. It's 8-6. to six. That would be the final score. That sound from 97.3, the fan. Cardinals and Reds, Nolan Gorman has been on fire of late. There's a line drive. It's fair down the right field line. Gorman extends his heading streak. He has a double driving in. Newt Bar, 1-0 Cardinals with two outs in the eighth. And they would go on to win that game 2-1. to one. That sound from the Cardinals radio network. Rob Manfred spoke with the Associated Press, and he told that news organization that owners – may vote on the A's Las Vegas move next month. Uh, this is when owners meet June 13th to 15th in New York. I'm going to be talking about that with Carl Ravitch coming up. And also, we've got Todd Radom giving us this week's Forgotten Field. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, a whole slew of basketball pods are out right now. The Woj pod has, uh, has emerged here. Uh, he's talking to uh, NBA draft analyst Jonathan Givney. Uh, about pro days, combines, Victor Wembanyama, Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson, guys that are rising stocks, sleepers, gems, all that stuff. And then, of course, the Low Post and the Hoop Collective, they'll have episodes uh, later today as Boston inching toward maybe, maybe coming back from, from down 3-0. We'll see. So check all of those out uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and YouTube. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks, Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. 
all aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch on Baseball Tonight. Carl Ravitch, play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball, who this weekend, Carl, will you will be in Atlanta. We got the Phillies. We got the Braves. Uh, we got Spencer Strider on the mound. Uh, pretty exciting to get someone who is probably right now in the conversation for the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Buster. We we did the White Sox, right, our first game, and I remember Dylan Cease, and you were, you know, we, we all kind of fell in love with what Dylan Cease was doing, and it was it was it was really hard and it was it was uh controlled, and we're like, that's gonna be one of the best pitchers in baseball. And and what happened to me is Spencer Strider and Dylan Cease at their root are very similar. They're power pitchers with some incredible movement. But Strider has been at that level, you know, all year long and has kind of separated himself from somebody who has similar stuff. So there's a lot about Strider that you got to love from his days in college to where he is now and his consistency. And on a staff where Max Fried was the guy, uh, you could certainly make the case that the last two years, I go back to that first meeting we had with him in that restaurant with his buddy in the mustache conversation that he uh, he's in the top, you know, top 10 percent of pitchers in Major League Baseball. We got a treat last weekend with uh, Verlander, who was ridiculously good, and it was a really good pitching matchup. And now we're going to get another guy um, against, I, I don't know, I guess, kitchen sink for the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah. In my conversation with, with Strider that I had, uh, you know, I mentioned to him that uh, during our the course of our hour long prep call yesterday and Zoom call, there was that conversation about how Spencer has just basically decided, look, I'm, I'm not going to be the guy who's got the three pitch mix or the four pitch mix or in you yeah. Darvish's case, the eight pitch mix. And it's pretty clear, you know, how smart he is that he just decided, look, this is what works for me. I'm going to keep uh, refining these and making them better and better and better. And I thought back to that conversation that, w- that we had with him in the restaurant where I-, I didn't get any hint of that, like this sort of like I'm, I'm super smart. Uh, it, it, there was no pretension in him whatsoever. He, on one hand, he knows his craft so well. And on the other hand, he had this he had a very down to earth guy. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's uh, I think that's the way I would portray him. I, you know, and if you 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 do research on him and you know him a little bit from our meeting and in other meetings and talking to him on the sidelines, um, uh, you know, there's there's a depth to him that's not present in all of baseball players. And uh, whether it's his love of music, uh, he is a guy that likes to go out and eat. He's got he's got friends. Um, Look, he's a Seinfeld fan. There's there's a lot of things about him that when you just sort of take the whole package, you're like, well, I can. I think that's a relatable guy. Um, and yet, I, I know that sometimes relatable guys on those levels, at least when it comes to their craft, maybe not as relatable because you you know they speak a language. It's in, it's Elon Musk in some ways. Like he's so far out there, uh, but he's able to internalize it to know what he wants. And I look at some point if both of those pitches are getting everybody out consistently, uh, why change? Now, will that velocity last, you know, years from now, or will you need to come up with a third pitch? He strikes you as the type who, when the time comes, he'll be able to figure that out. A hundred percent, you know, and he reminds me, uh, you know, part of the understated part of his personality is how competitive he is, which you can see on the mountain the other day, excuse me, he had a tough outing. 
and he goes back into the dugout and he just erupts. Like he was so pissed about how he was throwing that night. Uh, and he reminds me a little bit of CC Sabathia where you knew, okay, CC Sabathia breaks in the big leagues. He's a left-hander he's huge and he's throwing 97, 98 miles per hour. Uh, but that competitiveness drive, you know, drove CC to make changes that he needed to make as he was getting older. And I agree with you. I think Strider's that guy. And the fact that he already, and you'll hear this in this interview, understands that his changeup right now probably could work for him as a third pitch, but he also understands what makes him great. And, and, you know, you and I have been around so many players who, even when they're playing well, they will tinker and tinker and tinker. Mookie Betts, you know, has a reputation for that. Cal Ripken had a reputation for that. Uh, being a guy who, even in the best of times, was uh, always thinking that maybe he could do better. Strider seems to have this great understanding of, of himself and what makes him so good. Yeah, I, look, I can't uh, put myself in her shoes when it comes to being able to get on a mound and dominate major league hitters the way he does. But if there was anything that, that you could master um, and recognize against the competition, I'm winning, you know, 90% of the time. You know, his strikeout rate is an obscene uh, number. 40% of the batters he's faced, he struck out this year. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is, this is the age-old argument. This is why athletes, especially the great ones, are great. Um, they generally push themselves when other people look at them and say, well, why are you changing? Tiger Woods may be the single greatest example of that because he was such a dominant player at such a young age and decided to go through a number of coaches and swing changes. And you were, you know, you're puzzled by it, but it's that, you know, that's sixth or seventh sense of them that says, I can be better than I am, even though I'm dominating. And I think, I think the great ones, when they are dominating, recognize now's the time to continue to dominate with what works. And when I stop dominating, well, then I have to figure out another way to dominate. And I think that's a that's a very fine line for athletes. If this is working so well, why change it? And when it stops working so well, then be able to make a change. And it's almost like they're, they're kind of holding cards in their back pocket. I don't need to pull that card yet. Look, look at how dominant I am. So um, look, it's a self-awareness, too, that's really important and you know, he clearly has it. And baseball is one of the great sports. I think you would agree. Baseball is one of the great sports where guys can struggle and, and work their butt off and try different things. And occasionally it really clicks. Brandon Marsh is one of those examples, you know, with the Phillies. Um, Mickey Moniak, who was a Philly, is now sort of seeing some success. Marcelo Zuna this year, all of a sudden April was awful. And he worked his ass off and he started to hit the ball to right. And May has been terrific that it is one of those sports where you can, you can immediately see, because while it's a team game, it's all about your individual effort at the plate or on the mound or in the field that separates you. And, and you can see the fruits of your labor in many cases. And, you know, I think Strider's just sort of waiting there. Well, when I need it, I'll find another one. Yeah, and to tell the story, you know, that Dana Brown, Alex Anthopoulos, Dana Brown, now the general manager of the Astros, used to be the scouting director for the Braves. Alex Anthopoulos, head of baseball ops for the, the Braves, told me is that going into that draft when they selected Strider, Dana Brown had a great feel for Strider. He was really interested in taking him. The internal debate was, boy, 
We also like Bryce Elder. So in round four, do we take <laughs> Bryce Elder right. or do we take Spencer Strider? Uh, and they decide that they're going to make the move on Strider. They land him, and when they get to their fifth round pick, hey, there's Bryce Elder. They loved Spencer's athleticism. <clears throat> Man, that that, uh, that draft, uh, that selection paying off in a huge way. Uh, it looks like we're going to have Matt Olson on the microphone on Sunday, and we're hoping to get Ronald Acuna Jr. in our game-opening interview. That might be with Eduardo Perez. Uh, that's the best player in the National League right now, Carl. Yeah, and it's not it's not really close. Um, and no. there was a great you know the great article from uh, Alden Gonzalez there about Cunha and his mother and the injury and the subsequent depression and anxiety. And I'm never going to uh, be able to be the player I was. And again, he's another example of somebody that that needed to take time to recover from this to deal with the sort of self defeat that you feel because your legs are now not what they once were and that explosiveness isn't there. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he did the Venezuelan winter league and all the other things he did. And now he feels like he's, you know, he's back. Confidence in baseball is such a fleeting thing. And the fact that he's playing with all of it on, you know, arguably the best team in the national league um, when they're all put together and he's so far ahead. I mean, this is like this is like Trout a few years ago when he would go to the All-Star game. It was like the hardest thing in the world. You go to the All-Star game with every other great player, and yet you still are able to separate yourself. He, he's on a team that's got Olsen, that's got Riley, um, you know, that's got all these. John Murphy. Murphy. And, and yet he is he's so far. I, I can see us having this MVP conversation months from now. And one of those conversations, when there are two teammates, it's always, well, they may split the vote. Well, like he's on a team that's got a handful of guys that could end up in the conversation, and he's not in danger if he keeps himself of splitting any vote. Like he's so far ahead of everybody. He's a treat. He, he's he's great for the sport. He's obviously great for the game. He loves baseball. It's a it's a great. He's a great story. Yeah, look, I love analytics, uh, you know, love to, to dig in the numbers that reflect how players are performing. The one part about analytics that I don't fully have never trusted is it's just knowing how players make adjustments, right? The analytics yeah. are based on what the, the player has done to that moment. But right. your point about Strider, your point about Acuna, uh, that doesn't reflect the, the, the alterations, the changes, the adjustments, the improvements that players can make. And we see that time after time after time. Spencer Strider, you know, fourth round pick in the draft. Right now, he's in that conversation for best pitcher uh, on the planet. And I'm curious, from your perspective right now, who would you say is the best pitcher on the planet? You know, whether it's a Shane McClanahan of the Rays, who I think right now yeah. probably is the best lefty. Uh, Sandy Alcantara last year was the best pitcher in the National League. He's kind of gone down this year. He's taken a step back. Garrett Cole Feels like he's pitching more free. He's pitching with a ton of confidence right now. Uh, it, we went through about a four-year period where it felt like there was no doubt that the answer to that question, best pitcher in the planet, was Jacob deGrom. You know, Justin yep. Berlander held that title for some time. Max Scherzer Max held Scherzer. that title for yep. some time. Who would you say right now, in your mind, is the best pitcher on the planet? Yeah, one game that I needed to, uh, you know, get a get an incredible start from it. You know, you, you – I don't want to be the victim of, of, you know, recency, but seeing and knowing what he did last year and seeing what he did Sunday night, uh, it, 
it feels like Verlander is going to be in that conversation again. Um, you don't win the Cy Young last year and then, and then fall off the map. And he dealt with injury, and now he seems to be back in the forum. So I, I'm not certain why, if there's no regression, he doesn't end up being the most dominant and maybe reliable as far as moving forward now that he's, he's had this injury and he's healthy and he's only getting healthier. Uh, you know, I, I'd probably Buster. I know it's a small sample size um, and I get, you know, Strider and there's certainly some relievers, but if we're talking starting pitching, I, I would, you know, I probably lean on him. I, I, I'd probably lean on Verlander. I'd probably go McClanahan right now, 11 starts, and he's allowed 14 runs. <laughs> yeah. He's averaging almost six innings per start. He's got a 1.97 ERA, 8 no record. I know wins and losses don't really. I think, I think when you said uh, McClanahan as the lefty, it was kind of a given. So I went to the other guy. Like, who's, who's going to be the best right-handed starter? Because I felt like this was a Strider, Verlander, whoever else conversation. But, yeah, no, I mean, McClanahan's – Again, if you the lefty and the guy that you want, he's probably one. But I just am looking at what Verlander did, and I think if if he were healthy and coming off the year he did last year, he'd he'd very much be in that NL Cy Young conversation. So the Braves are playing the Phillies. So I think you would agree with me. One of the teams that might be at that tipping point, right, where <laughs> they've been disappointing early on, and either they're going to respond and, and move forward or they're going to continue to, to languish. Uh, the Blue Jays are in that conversation. They held a team meeting yesterday. Uh, you know, players really unhappy with the performance there. The San Diego Padres held a team meeting last week. They're in that position. Uh, among those teams, which team do you feel like is closer to the precipice? Um, you mean like falling overboard? Uh, yeah. In other words, to getting to a point where maybe they're not going to be able to recover. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's probably less about the talent on the team as it is about the teams that they play and the division they play in. And I just look at the American League East and I worry that in spite of playing better, the other teams are better than most in baseball. And it's just going to be really hard to make up ground. Um, I, I Look, I've been bullish. I thought the Phillies were going to be in the World Series. So I'm not giving up on them. We saw this. We saw last year what happened when they made the managerial change right around this time and they took off there's too much talent there I don't know what Ranger Suarez becomes some of my optimism was rooted in Painter delivering because of what he was doing in spring um, but I, I'd probably lean towards Toronto before I would San Diego and Philadelphia and I'll, I'll be honest I, I just I can't figure out San Diego like i I think there's just been some underachieving with Philadelphia and maybe it takes a while to get things going and they've been hurt. Uh, I can't figure out the Padres other than remember when Carl Crawford came over to join the Red Sox and Terry yes. Francona had like this amazing lineup and you're like, how are they ever going to lose? And it didn't really work out. I don't know. Is there, is that what's happening in San Diego? Cause I don't, I don't get it. The, the team has got way too much talent with really good pitching and I don't know, they've dealt with Suarez's injury, but I can't figure them out. The other two, I just think the Blue Jays are in a brutal division and those teams aren't going away. And I still have hope with Philadelphia. I don't understand San Diego. No, I agree with it. And it's so funny. You mentioned that 2012 Red Sox team. That's exactly the team. What was it? 2011. I'm trying to remember what, uh, 
was it 2000? Uh, well, anyway, I thought it was, I thought it was even Crawford, earlier, but yeah, the first year of Crawford and Gonzalez, you're like, Oh my God, that lineup is going to be unbelievable. And it turned out to be a mess. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and they weren't nearly as good as we thought they were going to be. And that I that lineup, I, I remember asking him, Buster, they could, they could literally, I remember having the conversation, you could line up your guys one through nine and then bat at nine, eight, seven, six up to one. It'd be the same. That's how good they were, at least on paper. And it, and it didn't work out. And look, the Padres aren't that deep, but my gosh, like what's going on here? That's there's something odd, something off. Yeah. And first and foremost, some of the stars, Soto's had, had a good series in Washington, but they need more from him and more consistency. And when Manny Machado is healthy, they need him to get back to what he was doing in the past, uh, you know, given the level of investment. I'm with you. I think Toronto is probably the team because of the division, they're 10 and a half games out in the American League East. And here's the surprising part of the Blue Jays to me. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we we saw that core coming together, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, and he thought, boy, this team is going to be an offensive juggernaut. They're 10th in the big leagues in run score, which is not good enough if you're going to be a playoff team in the American League and come out of the American League East. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And I think the recent uh, surge from Aaron Judge reminds everybody that that you almost have to temper some of your expectations on a guy like Vlad Guerrero, who who's got to prove year in and year out that he's he's in that same conversation with these game superstars. And I, I look, he's got all the ability in the world to do that, but you've got to be consistent. And, you know, who's leading them? Who's leading the league in OPS? It's Aaron Judge again. Um, and there are some guys on that list from Toronto, but collectively they're not playing uh, nearly as well as, as the group should. And, uh, you know, who I love on that team is Springer. Uh, that that's a lineup that you look at and you're like, my, again, how do you, how do you not be top five and run scored? How do you not bludgeon guys? And maybe it's still the old conversation we've had the last few years is pitching is just so far ahead of hitting. They have the advantage and the American league East. I know that's a balanced schedule now, but a good pitcher is going to beat a good offense. It, it just happens. And maybe the pitchers are still ahead of them. And they definitely have to get more out of Alec Manoa. Who you know absolutely last year who has uh, I mean shocking he's one of the worst pitchers in baseball statistically uh, which I don't think anybody saw that coming after what we saw yeah. out of out of him last year two more quick ones before you go Oakland ballpark situation Rob Manfred said yesterday that the other owners might vote on you know proving the Athletics uh, move to Las Vegas sometime in June I must say that it still feels like a giant leverage play because when Rob was asked. You know, was the door closed for Oakland? And I'm paraphrasing here. He said, well, you have to ask the mayor of Oakland, who said that, uh, you know, she cut off negotiations. And so it, it still feels, Carl, like, you know, it's a poker game. And, and maybe uh, John Fisher, the Oakland owner, is holding a, a 10 in a, in a 2. And he's trying to force the athletics, or excuse me, the city of Oakland, into giving him exactly what he wants, just a little bit more funding. Because it wasn't like they were really that far off in terms right. of getting a final deal in Oakland, I still don't know what to make of this. What about you? I think my takeaway is um, that the owner, uh, baseball, you know, the, the two the two stadium situations that have just never gotten resolved are Tampa and Oakland. And there's, there's just very little traction, you know, in each of those cities to suggest we got a deal done. While you're right about them being not miles apart, they moved, but I think the my guess is the patience and the blueprint 
as you suggest, for how baseball teams tend to move from city to city and get ballparks built for them, et cetera, is such that this is the sort of track that Oakland is taking. But I, I, I think my understanding is there's a real good chance they end up in Las Vegas. However, if Oakland came back and gave them the deal that they wanted, that it's not a done deal they're going. But I think that the most people, including those in baseball, feel like they're going to end up in Las Vegas. And if not, it certainly makes us all think Las Vegas is the next frontier. I mean, that's where that's where we're going. There's going to be a baseball team in Las Vegas at some point. And the last one uh, for you, uh, Jeff Passon wrote a great piece the other day. It's on ESPN.com about the electronic strike zone. He went down, watched the games in AAA where they're using this challenge system in half their games where teams get, you know, three challenges per game uh, in a, in a ball strike call that they disagree with. Uh, and you know, the other three days they're using a pure electronic strike zone. Carl, I don't think there's any doubt the trajectory has baseball headed toward a challenge system. What do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, Baseball was on a trajectory to expand playoffs. It happened. Baseball was on a trajectory, given the experiments in minor leagues, to to ban a shift, to add a clock, to everything that has been sort of uh, on the radar and used to minor league level. It's I don't know. Tell me what's been discounted, what's been thrown out versus what's made the cut and eventually made it to Major League Baseball. And look, we've seen our guy, Aaron Boone here, get thrown out. It feels like Booney gets thrown out every night. And most of that has to do with the strike zone. So it's quite clear that what's left as far as gray area goes is the strike zone. Um, I, you know, I think the opening of the Pandora box on that one where I worry is the is the limited amount of time you can do it, which I think is mandatory because you'll have people just, you know, hitting their uh, I want to look at like at some point you got to limit it, but my God, you are absolutely opening up the K zone that we all see and a ball outside and you're out of appeals. And uh, that's, that's just going to be another conversation of like, God, if we can get it right, why aren't we getting it right? First off, what year would you expect that it's going to happen? And two on, on Booney, I thought it was interesting. You know, he gets ejected again last night. He was ejected repeatedly last year. It's almost always about balls and strikes in interpretation, he was asked about, okay, well, are you in favor of the electronic strike zone? He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not advocating for that. And I know, <laughs> I know, I feel like I know Booney well enough to know, like, I think he would be more comfortable with a challenge system than a pure electronic strike zone. Plus he knows the umpires don't want to hear a manager coming out saying, I want the E zone. <laughs> Look, I think the challenge thing, having seen it um, works really well, but again, I think you're going to get into a place where once we start it, there are going to be many. Look, we'll do our game Sunday night, Braves and Phillies. And Ronald Acuna, in his first at bat, you know, uses his appeal and it's and he's right. Uh, and then two innings later, Riley uses it and he's wrong. And then they use another one and you're wrong and you and you just run out of them. And in the sixth inning, there's an egregious call or the eighth inning. And aren't people going to be? Oh my God, like we can get it right. We lost the game because they missed that and a three-two pitch was called ball four when it was a strike and we couldn't appeal it. Like, but that's all part of this, you know, that's part of these these introductions and then subsequently some of the amendments and some of the changes. But that that's 
that would be what I would be interested to see. Okay, how many do you get? <laughs> and then what happens in, in the eighth and ninth inning when it's the most important part and you don't have any? And that's, again, that's on the team and that's on the player, but I mean, you put yourself in the shoes of a batter and you realize that ball's outside and he called it a strike, but ah, but we got to save our save our appeals. You better be sure, Buster. You better be damn sure if you're going to appeal that, that, that you're right. And that's what uh, Major League Baseball officials saw last year in the first use of the minor leagues, that teams already early on were beginning to strategize with their players, conversations with their players. Uh, look, you, we understand that you're upset about a strike one call in the first inning, but we need to save those appeals right. for the eighth and ninth inning when it right. might be pivotal. All right, Carl, thanks for doing this. I'll see you in Atlanta. All right, look forward to it. See you, Buster. Spencer Strider pitches for the Atlanta Braves in this Sunday. He'll be working on Sunday Night Baseball against the Philadelphia Phillies. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to, happy to be here. All right. So I mentioned it before we got started. A lot of conversation on our prep call about you and, and your background and how you got to this point. And so David Cohen wanted me to ask you, uh, when you finish a start, what are the first things that you look at, that you evaluate, in determining uh, what you were doing in that start? Um, I, guess, I guess it depends on, um, you know, the outcomes, um, sort of the uh, logistics of the game as well. But, um, you know, I tried to um, give myself the, the remainder of the game, the remainder of that day to uh, just sort of go through my recovery process and um, unwind as best I can. And then the next day I try to pick up um, sort of the evaluation and the analysis of it. But, um, you know, there's there's the immediate like metrical analysis that I do just looking at, um, you know, what about my stuff was different? Uh, you know, what, what trends was I already focused on with my slider or fastball that were continuing or didn't continue? Um, you know, some, some of the, the execution, you know, understanding maybe if I didn't execute a, a two strike pitch, why didn't that happen? Um, so it's, it's sort of the, the, um, the controllables that are, or the measurables that are controllable for me is where I spend a lot of my time. All right. So what are some of those specific numbers in, in the data points? Yeah. Um, so recently I've been focused on slider velocity a lot. Um, you know, that, that pitch is still kind of new to me in a way, um, you know, as I've, I've given, gained more feel for um, spinning the ball that way. Um, I've understood that I can, I can do a little more with it than I thought I was able to. And uh, so kind of finding what's the sweet spot for that pitch. Um, should I try to, you know, turn it into two pitches, you know, different things like this. And, you know, what's what's a feasible um, uh, task to take on or, or, you know, in the middle of the season, stuff like that. I mean, you know, those types of things. And then, um, you know, like I said, why might have I not executed a certain pitch or based on the metrics of that pitch, based on. Um, the situation based on uh, the specific hitter. What about um, previous pitches led to not executing a pitch uh, metrically or um, you know location wise? It's a it's it's a complicated process. <laughs> yeah, it's like asking a math professor how to explain a formula, right? In a in a podcast. When did you start to get interested in, in data points like that? Uh, I, th I think I always had. I, I, I guess as I've you know experience more of the game and, and, and gain experience, I, I figured out what's available to me and what, you know, I, I like to think that I always tried to maximize what, whatever I knew was available to me when I was in high school, that was 
you know, limited um, set of resources. And then when I got to college, you know, TrackMan and other things started to become available. And there's a whole new section of baseball and analytics that are, that are now at my disposal. And then obviously that grows as you get closer to the big leagues and makes the big leagues. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, I don't want to leave any stone unturned in terms of my development and um, giving myself a chance to succeed. So I, I kind of dip my, my toes into, you know, everything. So uh, I've covered a lot of pitchers through the years who, when presented with numbers like that, some of them almost want to just turn it off. Like it's too much information for you. What was attractive uh, about it in terms of, and how difficult was that for you to sort through about what mattered and what didn't? Yeah, I think, I think everything matters a little bit. Um, you know, you can, you can place emphasis on different things and no, you're not necessarily wrong, but I think that, like I said, every, every resource and every, um, every bit of data is, is useful in some way. And uh, I, I think that it's important to sort of isolate that from the competitive mindset of once I'm on the field, none of that matters. I can't control any of that. And my goal is to sort of use all these things and the data resources to prepare myself best that when I turn off my brain and it's just about competing, um, you know, I've given myself every opportunity and I've sort of utilized that aspect of the game when it was useful to me. But once I'm on the field, it's, it's, it's no longer really a resource. It's more of uh, something that's specific to preparation. One of the questions that uh, one of our guys asked me to ask you was about your fastball and how have you improved your fastball. I was speaking with Alex Stopoulos the other day and he talked about the effectiveness of that pitch for you and how you refined it. Uh, what have been some of the important uh, elements of that? Yeah. Um, you know, when I got to Clemson, I, I figured I had figured out I had good backspin and um, I was able to spin the ball well. And, um, you know, then I got hurt and had the opportunity to sort of tailor my mechanics and um, just sort of my arsenal to to that aspect of myself. And, um, you know, that included increasing my extension, lowering my my uh, uh, release height, creating a better vertical approach angle. Uh, obviously improving my velocity, um, things that kind of help create, you know, I like to talk about like the formula of a pitch of velocity, movement, extension, and release height, and all these kind of things um, that are measurable packaged together in an equation essentially to create deception to the hitter. And some guys, you know, add things to movement uh, at the expense of velocity to create a, a pitch that's deceptive. Other guys do the, do the opposite. Um, you know, I, I sort of use that time during TJ to uh, try and optimize every part of that, that equation. Yeah, and it sounds like at that time, uh, after you had Tommy John surgery, it was really uh, useful to you, something almost uh, like a, a crossroad for you in terms of how you helped yourself get better, if you can walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I touched on a little bit, just just figuring out sort of what my strengths were or what they could be before I got hurt, and then that um, sort of reset or, or blank slate uh, enabling me to, from the ground up, sort of move in one direction entirely, you know, not having to worry about um, competing or, or, um, you know, being ready every seven days, six days, whatever. It was just um, sort of a 12 month program of, of becoming what I thought would be um, the most effective version of myself. And, you know, that, I think that, that, like I said, I tried to do things that accentuated what I already knew to be uh, my strengths, you know, velocity and um, spinning the ball well. And then, uh, you know, those things, sort of um, 
you know, as I, as I, and doing so, I learned about myself a lot and was able to continue those trends, uh, even after, you know, 2020 and into and today. So I've heard that you're a huge baseball fan and, and you know, this, there, there are a lot of guys who play who aren't necessarily big fans of the game. When you were growing up, sort of, what was the team you rooted for? Who was your guy? Who were some of the pitchers that really you were drawn to? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up a Cleveland fan. So, um, you know, when I first started to, you know, really pay attention to baseball, it was like CC Sabathia, uh, Cliff Lee, and then, um, Corey Kluber was probably my favorite pitcher. And, um, you know, watching him when I was in high school, I tried to emulate him a lot and figured out that I didn't do anything similarly to him. So that was sort of counterproductive, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, and then even now, like Walker Bueller, Garrett Cole, um, when I was rehabbing TJ, I spent a lot of time, um, looking at Garrett Cole and, and, uh, Bueller, even you Darvish guys that, um, I thought moved really well that, um, did things that, that I could, uh, replicate. Where, where do you think that curiosity uh, comes from that, that you clearly have in terms of information and, and getting, uh, you know, to finding tools that are going to help make you better? When did you start to feel that way as a, as a, as a person? Um, I, you know, and working with a sports psychologist recently, I've figured out a lot of it's just kind of the way I'm wired in terms of um, a reliance on like data and, and, and um, sort of more, um, uh, objective, like tangible concepts. So, um, you know, I, I, I need a lot of justification and a lot of information to, to make decisions and, um, sort of feel confident about things. And, uh, like I said, I, 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 you know, being good at baseball and succeeding and winning is probably my number one priority in life. So, um, I, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. So I think that, that everything is a resource and you don't want to buy entirely into one thing at the expense of something else. You kind of need to uh, learn how to use everything um, as best you can. So tell me when you felt like you were really beginning to put it all together, where you felt like, boy, you know what, I'm turning a corner here. Um, I still feel like there's a lot of, a lot of progress to be made, but um, you know, I never, I never, I'm very skeptical of, you know, saying I figured anything out or anything like that, but um in uh, 2021, when um, we sort of had a, a another reset moment in spring training, when I was I'm obviously still in the minors and just um, I think I had taken a couple too many steps at once and got ahead of myself. And the player development staff sort of sat me down and said, "Hey, you're you're good at you know one thing right now, and that's throwing a fastball. So let's let's make that the centerpiece of who you are, and then try to add incrementally to that." And that was what I needed to hear. You know, that's that's kind of more the process of how I've developed anyways. And so that enabled me to um, sort of make a lot of jumps quickly. And, um, you know, that's when I felt like, OK, I, I have confidence that I could you know, progress at this at this level and, and get guys out. Do you ever have conversations uh, with opposing hitters where they give you some sort of feedback on what they're seeing from, you know, from their perspective, how the ball pops up on them and, and what's something that jumped out at you that somebody said to you? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I'm always interested in, you know, watch it. You know, we, we have uh, obviously a lot of data at our uh, disposal during the game even. So, um, you know, when a new pitcher comes in or, or the starter for that day on the opposing team, everybody's trying to understand what's their arsenal, what's their stuff like, what are their, their biggest weapons, what are their weaknesses. And, um, you know, I like being a part of those conversations with hitters and um, <clears throat> trying to trying to get a, an idea into what they're looking for. And especially against some of the games, you know, better pitchers, especially better relievers where, um, you know, there's, there's 
they're having to focus on one thing, whether it's velocity or a specific pitch that's elite. You know, what what is it that you uh, you look for? How do you how do you attempt to be successful in these situations? Because obviously, I I uh, I can learn from that to some extent. And um, you know, there's no there's no one way to be successful. I think so. It's 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 interesting to hear how uh, different hitters and uh, with different experiences and careers have have managed to uh, you know develop their own plan of attack. You know, it's interesting because a lot of times when uh, people talk about starting pitchers, they always talk about a three pitch mix or a four pitch mix. As you know, uh, you know, when you look at the percentage of your usage, you essentially rely heavily on two pitch, two pitches, even though, you know, I hear from Braves people and the numbers back up that your changeup's pretty good. I'm curious what your thought process is there uh, on focusing on those two pitches. Yeah, I mean, the changeup's progressing and it's it's something that um, I think I could I could use less or more. Um, but you know, there's, there's a, like, you know, like I referred to the sort of the formula of what makes a pitch deceptive. I mean, there's, there's a, uh, a lot of, I put a lot of work into the fastball and making that sort of the centerpiece, being able to pitch with that pitch. It's, it's, um, you know, arguably takes the least amount of effort. It's the most consistent day to day requires least amount of feel. It's something that I can, I can throw, um, to a spot more so than the off speed. And it's, it's, if I can make that the centerpiece and keep that the centerpiece of my arsenal and the, and the, the pitch I use the most and that um, it sort of gives me the most um, or the I have to deal with inconsistency, the least with that pitch for uh, say it one way. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the changeup can, can be utilized more, but um, you know, the fastball is always going to be what sort of my, my uh, game is built around. So Joey Votto, I once did a piece on him and he's known, I'm sure you know this, that he's known as a very technical hitter. Uh, and Jay Bruce is one of his teammates. I asked him, you know, how many conversations you have with Joey, Joey? And he's like, we speak completely different languages. I, and I'm curious for you, who are pitchers? Because you are so well-versed uh, in, the, in the technical aspects of what you're doing. Who are some pitchers that you enjoy speaking with? Yeah, I mean, everybody on our staff. Um... You know, I don't I don't have a ton of interaction with guys on their teams just, you know, for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, Max and I talk about stuff a lot. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time on the on the bench, obviously, in the dugout. So um, even even hitters like Kevin, uh, Kevin Pilar is very uh, interested in sort of the pitcher's mindset and, you know, the analytics of, of each pitcher and um, understanding what we're thinking, sort of sort of how I am with, with his mindset as a hitter. And um, so those conversations are, are taking place all the time. And, um, yeah, you know, it's. I think a lot of a lot of guys probably think I'm just insane and say a lot of big words, which is usually true. I'm not really that smart. But, <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's always a lot of good conversations going on. Last one, uh, you change your number in the off season. That's backstory is pretty cool. If you could uh, just tell that for us. Yeah, so I I always wanted to. I mean, you know, get into the big leagues and you know choose your own number. I think it's um, uh, it, in some ways it's superficial, but. Um, to me, it was just something I, I was excited about. And so um, when I was, uh, you know, generously given the, the opportunity to sign the contract and uh, get to commit to being here for a long period of time, I thought, you know, it's a good opportunity to pick my own number. And um, I always worked 28 growing up for Corey Kluber and Scott Clemson and, and Seth Beer, who's one of the greatest cosmos players of all time, had 28. So I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I went with 29 for uh, John Smoltz. And then, uh, of course, now I play for the Braves. That number's retired. Matt Olson has 28. So um, 
both of those numbers were, were taken. So I thought, well, the other number that has some significance to me that's pitcher based is uh, 99 for Rick Vaughn. So, and then the other reason is um, Paul Rabel. I'm, I'm a big, big lacrosse fan and uh, Paul Rabel's best lacrosse player of all time. He's number 99. And it's, it's, uh, it's been cool to see what he's done with the PLL and stuff. So um, yeah, it's kind of the two reasons I, I like that number. All right. Spencer, thanks for taking time to do this. Can't wait to see you pitch on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America or all around the world. Todd, how you doing? Oh, sir, I'm fine, buddy. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I asked Carl Ravitch uh, in our segment with him who he considers to be the best pitcher on the planet. Uh, he mentioned Justin Berlander. We talked about Shane McClanahan. We had this interview with Spencer Strider. This moment as a baseball fan, how would you answer that question? From Shohei Otani out there, because things can change in the snap of a finger. And would you go against that guy? I'm not sure you would. So I like to, uh, you know, you you buy stocks in anticipation of what the earnings are going to be going forward. Let's just put it that way. Well, and I, you know, to your point, and when you initially said his name, like, no, nah, he's not, he's not as good as you know McClanahan. He's not as good as Strider as a pitcher. But to your point, he's also the only guy who can hit a three-run homer in support of himself. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And, you know, we've talked about this so many times over the years, and you talk about it every day. The baseball season is such a marathon. And, uh, you know, what what seems baked in place at this very moment in time can change tonight. It can change tonight. It can change tomorrow. So if you're going to bet on a horse, we're mixing all our metaphors here, Buster. All the metaphors are out there. Um, give me something that I feel pretty good putting my money down on. And uh, it's not about today necessarily. We're taking the longer view. How about that social media, taking the uh, longer view? Uh, well, and you say putting the money down, and we're going to find that, we're going to see that play out in the fall when Otani gets a deal of over $500 million. So literally, yeah, <laughs> people are going to put their, their we, we used to say Brinks truck. Then we got into piece of the franchise. What do we have now, Buster? What's the analogy? Oh, man. Uh, I do this all the time with my kids, by the way, where I'll make some reference, you know, that they'll look at me like, no, that, that that's completely outdated. <laughs> all exactly. Right. Let's get to this week's forgotten, uh, forgotten field. We're going out west today, Buster. Baseball history. It's chock full of weird ballpark quirks. But today we're going to talk about a venue that seated over 90,000 fans for baseball. Its left field foul pole stood a mere 251 feet from home plate, 
upped by a 42-foot-high screen, and the deepest part of right center field was a cavernous 440 feet away. The Los Angeles Coliseum served as temporary host to the Dodgers for their first four seasons while they waited for Dodger Stadium to be completed. Opened in 1923, this mammoth stadium has served as host to two Olympiads, the first Super Bowl, an MLB All-Star Game, and one World Series. In 2028, it will become the first venue anywhere to host events for three Summer Olympic Games. When Brooklyn Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley announced plans to shift his team to the West Coast, there were three options available for a temporary venue. Wrigley Field, a small minor league stadium that would later serve as the Angels' first temporary home, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and the L.A. Coliseum. The Cubs' first choice was the Rose Bowl, but talks with city officials broke down. The National League also advised O'Malley that placing a club in Pasadena might open the L.A. territory to another team who might seek to locate their team there. So that option was discarded. Finally, with opening day drawing closer, in mid-January 1958, the Dodgers proposed a plan to convert the Coliseum to a suitable baseball venue. They paid $600,000 for a two-year lease, that's all, and $300,000 for baseball renovations, and they played their first home game there against their former New York rivals, the newly rechristened San Francisco Giants, on April 18th, 1958. Pitchers, Buster, they weren't happy with the Coliseum's odd dimensions. Milwaukee ace Warren Spahn grumbled, proposing a rule change, making it mandatory for a ball to travel at least 300 feet for a home run. Giants pitcher Johnny Antonelli called the left field wall a farce, and L.A. pitcher Ed Roba, commenting on the sheer vastness of the place, said, and I quote, it looks like Grand Canyon with seats. Sight lines were less than optimal. Some seats were more than 700 feet from home plate. Despite it all, the Dodgers won the World Series, their second season there in 1959. They drew crowds of 90,000-plus for each of their three home games, and the club moved to their sparkling, normally-dimensioned new home, Dodger Stadium in 1962. On March 29, 2008, the Dodgers celebrated their 50th anniversary in L.A. with a return to their first home stadium, hosting the defending World Series champion Boston Red Sox in an exhibition game that was played in front of more than 115,000 spectators, a baseball record. They spent a quarter of a million dollars to construct temporary fencing in left field, dugouts, and a diamond. This time around, left field was a mere 201 feet from home plate, topped off by a mammoth 60-foot-high screen. When Dodgers outfielder Juan Pierre was told of the dimensions, he feared for his safety. It'll be like 180 feet from the hitters, and those Boston guys, they hit the ball pretty hard, he said. I might have to wear a cup. How about that? (laughs) L.A. manager Joe Torre utilized a five-man infield, and Red Sox manager Terry Terry Francona said he was just happy that he wasn't pitching or hitting. Sadly, my little flares would have carried to the left fielder. (laughs) A fun and nostalgic night was enjoyed by all, however, including future Tampa Bay Rays manager Kevin Cash, who had a three-run homer for the visitors. Center field at the original Yankee Stadium was almost 500 feet from home plate. Houston's outfield fence featured a sharply sloping hill. Boston has its green monster, but Los Angeles and the LA Coliseum once had the Great Wall of LA, and that is this week's forgotten field. And I think that you would agree with me. It's in the conversation for the worst baseball field ever. Yes. 
<laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be. There were there were really bad baseball fields in the 19th century that we just have no knowledge right. of. There are no great <laughs> photographs that exist. There were basically cow pastures that, you know, with a diamond. Excuse me. But uh, but the L.A. Coliseum is just it stands out in its sheer weirdness. And uh, again, a temporary situation. But uh, we've talked about just last week, we talked about Exhibition Stadium or the week before in Toronto with a very strange broker situation there. But the L.A. Coliseum, really, really weird. And those pictures of the World Series buster, you know, it's just like it's before you and I were born. So we see these images um, that are very embedded probably in our minds. Very, very strange. Yeah, it's crazy because you see what happens with the Rockies. You know, I think the Rockies, part of the reason why that they have, have struggled to have consistent success in their history is because their ballpark and playing at elevation plays such challenges. Those ballparks with weird dimensions uh, can have an impact on team performance. Uh, and the idea that the Dodgers, you know, went to the World Series, uh, despite the fact they're playing this weird ballpark, that that's su- surprising to me. Yeah, and one of the surprising things researching this week's segment was the fact that it's January of 1958, and they don't know where they're going to play yet. They wow. have no idea. There's really no ideal baseball-specific ballpark that would uh, be great to host their games. So they go in on this mammoth renovation, and that took a lot of work, and they got it done before April you know, April 15th or whatever that was when they opened up against the Giants. So now we project forward to what an Oakland, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas athletic situation might look like and it's going to be years if and when it ever gets done four months three months whatever that was and uh you know again get back to the weirdness i can't even imagine the offensive numbers you know we we think the oakland pitching numbers are bad you wait till they in fact they wind up in las vegas you know how (laughs) difficult that would be in terms of run score all right todd thanks for doing this oh we got to get this week's quiz. We have a quiz to do. What are we I doing here? I just saw here? Sarah Langs just popped up on my Zoom screen. I'm like, oh, I got to wrap. And then I'm like, no, we have to get to this week's quiz. And and Sarah's sitting there like, yeah, this is where I've been dominating lately. Go ahead, she is, she is on a roll. So here's this week's question. He is the single season all-time home run leader in the history of the Dodgers franchise. Is it A, Cody Bellinger? Is it B, Sean Green? Is it C, Adrian Beltre, or is it D, Duke Snyder, the all-time single-season home run leader in the history of the Dodgers franchise? Cody Bellinger, Sean Green, Adrian Beltre, or Duke Snyder? Taylor? I'll go uh, Duke Snyder. All right, Sarah? Can I phone a friend? Can I phone Sarah Links? <laughs> she know. What are you talking about? You, you just guessed on the letter and you've been winning. <laughs> okay, I'm going to guess C. <laughs> well, okay, and I'll go Sean Green. Foster, you break through this week because well, it was Sean Green who hit 49 home runs in 2001. So congratulations. Yeah, Sarah Langs would have absolutely, she would have put me on double secret probation if I didn't get that one right. all right todd thanks for doing this all right guys good seeing you this is the numbers game with sarah langs sarah langs reporter producer for mlb.com sarah how you doing this week i'm doing great buster how are you I'm doing great, although I must say I was laughing yesterday when our old friend Aaron Boone, who worked with us on Sunday Night Baseball and Baseball Tonight, ejected again, and it really does feel like he's taken this next level. You know, I just texted him this morning 
hey, you're going to catch Bobby Cox? Mm. And if I get an answer, I'll relate that. But what are some numbers behind this? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I also laugh every time I see this happen. Again, that has nothing to do with the game or baseball or anything. It just has to do with knowing him. I feel the same way when I see Alex Cora, David Ross, Bruce Bochy getting angry like that as well. But especially Booney because we know his temperament, how good-natured he is, and it's just so funny to see him in that state. So since he became manager... He has 30 ejections. That is the most in the matrix of any manager since the start of 2018. And over the last two years, he already has 13. So we had nine last year, and he's up to four this year. So, I mean, will he pass Bobby Cox? Probably not, but the pace is certainly something. So uh, he just answered my text. He sent me a, uh, a gift. Of, uh, a, of a young actor saying, no way, Jose. Like, he's like, there's no way he's going to catch Bobby Cox. We'll see how that goes. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is six. So I think I said on Monday, if Bryce Miller keeps pitching this way, I'm going to keep coming back with Bryce Miller stats, and here I am again. So in his most recent start, he went six innings to allow two hits. So he is the first pitcher since at least 1901 to go at least six innings and allow four hits or fewer in each of his first five appearances. And in all of those games, he has yet to allow more than five base runners. That is one outing shy of tying the longest streak of at least six innings and five or fewer base runners. That record since 1901 is at six held by Jacob DeGrom, Shane McClanahan, uh, Clayton Kershaw, and Zach Granke. And again, that's at any point in career. And he's one outing shy of tying that to start his career. He's been outstanding. And I know people are like, oh, he based the A's. They aren't that great. He's done this in five outings. This is not beginner's luck at this point. Number two. Number two is 450. So last night, Austin Riley had quite the evening with his home run in a 459-foot home run, which was 113.8 miles an hour off the bat. That's the hardest hit home run he's ever had, and we know he hits the ball hard. And then he comes back, and it's a 458-foot home run, one foot shy of the first one. So he was the third player with two 455-foot home runs in the game tracked by Stackhouse, joining Wilson Contreras in 2019. And Trevor's story at Coors Field in 2018. If we lower it to the even 450, then we get Charlie Blackman also at Coors in 2019. Number one. Number one is 104. So we have a very sort of stat cast, yeah, metric-driven final two numbers here. Yoanderon, who we know throws hard, hit a new level. On Wednesday, he threw three pitches that were tracked to 104.0 or faster, including a strikeout of poor Casey Schmidt. 
Rookie, here's a hundred four mile an hour pitch strikeout to end the game. So he became the fourth pitcher with a hundred and four mile an hour strikeout in the pitch tracking era, which goes back to two thousand eight. Roald is Chapman is seven of those. Jordan Hicks has one, and Mauricio Cabrera had one. And even the number of guys to throw a hundred and four, that's a hundred four point oh, no rounding, nothing. Roldis Chapman has 66 of those in that pit tracking or Jordan Hicks has 12. Yohan Durant with three in that game already ranks third on that list. Then you have Ryan Helsley with two and Mauricio Cabrera, Tyron Guerrero, Camilo Duval, and Niftali Feliz with one each. It's funny because I saw a tweet from someone the other day who happened to meet his family on a plane while the individual was streaming the Twins game. And his little kid, who looks like he's maybe six or seven, says, who are you rooting for? The person says, oh, the Twins. And he goes, my dad's on the Twins. He throws 103 miles an hour. And that's <laughs> all he said, but it's so obvious who it is. Now he's got to update that and say, my dad throws 104. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. We talked to Spencer Strider in the podcast before, and I asked this question to Carl Ravitch. I asked it of Todd Radom, and you know I love to put you in impossible situations. Who do you consider in this moment to be the best pitcher on the planet? How would you answer that question today? And as you and I have talked about in the past, that's fluid. Like Dylan sees through so great an opening day, you're like, man, he's in that conversation and he's drifted back. So in this moment, who would you consider to be the best pitcher in the planet? Oh, my gosh. I mean, Spencer Strider is certainly in the conversation. I mean, depends how broad of a context we're going with that planet because I just told you what Bryce Miller is doing, and I'm starting to wonder if he might be starting the All-Star game as a rookie in his home ballpark, but that's not a whole lot of a uh context or a whole lot of history for him obviously i mean i always think of shane mcclanahan these days in terms of guys who are currently healthy and pitching we know what jacob Durham can do if he were healthy we know what he was doing this year minus opening day spencer shredder is absolutely on the list and i think he adds to it every time he comes out even this year with Maybe not as dominant as last year. He's getting a ton of strikeouts. But I think right now I would go Shane McClanahan, but we'll see. Yeah, great minds. That's where I landed, too. I was like, right in this moment, Shane McClanahan, best pitcher on the planet. All right, Sarah, talk to you next week. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Friday. Uh, over the week, though, I have to mention, I went to Yankee Stadium, saw the Orioles win, uh, eight run, seventh inning. Really enjoyed that. Uh, my wife did not. She's not really a sporty gal, but uh, she loves the Yankees and was gloating a whole bunch throughout that game, Buster. And then those those jokes just dried up. Don't know what happened there, but uh, good time. How about you slam dunking on your spouse? Okay. <laughs> 
How about that? Well, let me. I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you, as someone who's been divorced, uh-huh. not a good idea. Okay, I, I definitely, I always take your advice. Um, but, but I have to say, Buster, you know, we're walking around the stadium. There was a rain delay, and I will commend the Yankees fans. They are not shy. Uh, I had multiple people get in my face and yell, "F the Orioles!" Just right there in my grill. And then what are you going to do? I just kind of shrug it off. But the first one and the most aggressive one, this guy got in my face and F the Orioles. My wife is right behind me. She is cackling. She loved it so much. She loves sassy New Yorkers uh, as she you know, can be one. So uh, we had a great time, but I thought it was worth uh, mentioning there. Yeah, I love the Instagram pictures you had from that <laughs> night. It's a good time. Great food there. Great beer options. Got a big old high ally. Um, That was tasty. So let's get in the tweets here. Paul S. At Sports Paul rates, and I love the pace of play this year when I'm at the ballpark. Um, I never go wander around the concourse anymore because I miss too much of the game. Does baseball need an intermission to give people a chance to get food and drinks? I kind of felt the same way. I haven't been to a game this season. And once the game started, I don't I didn't leave my seat. So it is a little, you know, a little push and pull there. I don't I don't mind it. But what do you think? Yeah, there's no chance there'll be an intermission uh, ever <laughs> with Major League Baseball. There might be in hockey. You know, there is in the NBA. There certainly is in the NFL. They'll never build that into baseball. That would m- make the old schoolers absolutely lose their minds. Yeah, Tim Kirkshen, he would uh, he would implode into a, a black hole or something. Uh, John Lewis at John Aiden Lewis writes in, the new rules have saved the sport with shorter games. They might also consider a 7.30 p.m. playoff start time so that young fans can watch a full World Series game before bedtime. I think they do on weekends uh, or maybe weeknights, but there are some World Series games that start at 7.30, but it'll be cool this year if you actually get, and look, the longer uh, commercial breaks during the World Series, you're probably looking at 2.45 or three hours, but a game being over, World Series game being over by 10.15, we have not seen that that much in the last 30 years. I'm kind of sleeping on the playoff games moving a little bit faster because that is, uh, yeah. you know, they can, they can drag on uh, at certain points. Dave Olson at D Olson 61 writes, and I've been thinking about these super long uh, 10 plus year contracts lately. Do you think the teams are counting on someone like Bogarts and Trey Turner retiring before the end of their deal and freeing up some of the salary? I feel like there's no chance of that. No, because <laughs> uh, basically the player association would tell the player, look, you need to, to play out the contract. If the team winds up releasing you because of performance, the money's guaranteed. You can't walk away from that. There've been very few instances in which a player has done that. One example of a player doing that, Mark McGuire, after 2001 season, he retired. He felt like he wasn't living up to his contract. Stewie, 1969, writes in, who is your favorite left-handed swing? My current favorite is Rowdy Tellez. What a low effort, sweeping beauty. Whenever he swings, I see a rainbow behind his bat. Uh, I love Jordan Alvarez who, you know, as Dusty Baker uh, explained this spring when we had him on Sunday Night Baseball, he has such a simple swing. And it's part of the reason why when when Alvarez missed so much time in spring training, he was able to come back and be productive right away. The simplicity of his swing and the power in his swing, that to me is the best left-handed one, but the best one all time. There's no doubt it's Ken Griffey Jr., Justin Woodwick at Woodwick underscore Justin writes and Hey, Buster, my brother thinks the Rays will be in the World Series, and I think it's definitely possible the way they are playing. What do you think? Can you validate Justin and his brother right now? I, I don't know if I would pick them to be in the World Series because the American League playoffs are going to be tough. Like mm-hmm. you would assume that the Rangers are going to be in with that great offense. 
the Astros defending champs. There's going to be a, a toughness, uh, you know, about them as they enter. Uh, I, I mean, look, the American League East teams that are going, the Yankees are playing so well right now. The Orioles are dangerous. Um, I guess the one team I would discount would be whatever teams come out, out of the American League Central. So I think once you get into the postseason, it's going to be a tough road for Tampa Bay. Oh, yeah. Last one for the week. Don Irvine writes in all things considered, who is the best team in baseball right now, the Rays or the Dodgers? The Rays, uh, by far the most home runs in the big leagues, and they've allowed, uh, I think they're third in fewest home runs allowed. That's pretty remarkable. All right. There you have it. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games this weekend. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back on Monday. I'm sorry. No, we will not be back on Monday, Buster. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Because, I was going to ask you about that, wow. about taping on my flight back, and you know when are we going to work that out? So we'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday, could be, because we respect the summer holidays, Buster. I know you love to work. But everyone needs a day off every once in a while. It never occurred to me until you just said that. That, that <laughs> was not that was not a possibility. I was already thinking, or well, we're gonna have to tape at eight a.m. at the Atlanta airport, leaving there, flying back to Montana. But no, okay, well that settles that. If you wanted a, a true look into Buster's psyche right there, there you have it, listeners. But <laughs> not even considering that Monday's a holiday. There you go. Uh, I always tell, yeah, I always tell the story about uh, growing up as a kid on the dairy farm. The only day that we got off where we didn't have to go to the barn was Christmas morning. Besides that, 365 morning and night. <laughs> All right. We'll be back on Tuesday. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Spencer Strider, to Carl, Sarah, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.